This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash. And with me, as always, is my co-host and my flower, flesh and blood. It's Hank. Somebody's heart. That was nice. I mean, if it wasn't about cutting my arms and legs off while dressed as a samurai, it sounded kind of nice. I kind of technically just called you a pussy, but whatever. Oh, I thought you were making a reference about cutting me up and killing me. Because, you know, guinea pig. Same basic reference. Well, my introduction this week probably isn't as clever and as good as yours, but I've been thinking about dreams. And I finally decided what I want to be when I grow up. And I want to be Tony Clifton. I mean, Bob Zamuda's going to die one day, and if Andy Kaufman, in fact, isn't dead and is hiding out somewhere, he's soon probably going to die. He's got to be up there in age. And I think being humorless, drinking a lot, and vulgar and rather offensive while chain-smoking is right up my alley. And honestly, I don't think there's something more cut out for me than being the next Tony Clifton. Sure, you're loud, abrasive, obnoxious. I've even been practicing. Yeah, you can do it. I got a joke. You want to hear it? Go for it. All right. So I just flew in from out east. It's very cold out east. It's very cold. I was out east, and it's very cold. And I was thinking this would be funny if if we just took all the buildings out east and we put an air conditioner in them instead of a heating unit, and then it would just be colder. You know, and that would be funny. Wow. That joke sucked. What was that <laughs> It sounded exactly like Tony Clifton, though, didn't it? I mean... Uh, wow. Was there a punchline in there? Well, yeah, it's going to be colder. Uh, Okay, that's desirable, I guess. It's funny, because it's colder. All right, yeah, it doesn't matter. Still, I'm going (laughs) to practice. This week. I'm going to keep practicing, and one day, I tell you, I will be the next Tony Clifton. Uh, Get to drinking more. Start pounding them back. I'm on it. This week we are doing random ass weird anthology movies that you can find on YouTube. That's the gist of the show. Random horror anthology movies. And we didn't pick, you know, the the top of the line. We didn't go creep show. There's one in there that is uh most of you have heard of, and then probably the other uh what, five in this uh, in the overall arc of the uh the anthology show shows. Yeah, you probably heard of one. The rest of them probably never heard of at all. But you can watch them for free on YouTube. And I have no qualms about it because either the people involved are all dead or there's nobody to actually make money off of what these films are for the most part. I mean, they're all just kind of lost VHS movies for the most part. And I will say I think one of the biggest driving forces of this episode is just so we could talk about a Joel M. Reed vehicle. If you've been following us on Twitter, the Professor Alexander Nash is the man behind the tweet mask. He's the one exercising his fingers to the bone every Friday night for Joe Bob's last drive-in. Yeah, you join us, live tweet with us, enjoy it. But yeah, it's Alexander Nash, and he made a pretty successful tweet about our recently departed, wonderful, blood-sucking freak, Joel M. Reed. And this show is the response for that. So thank you, Alexander Nash. You're putting us on the map. I always put us on the map because I'm smart and attractive, good personality. I know a lot of random weird stuff. 
Anyway, I'm not going to sit here and jerk myself off any more than I have to. That's other people's jobs. I'll start doing it. You smell really nice. You have very nice hair. Um, You've got a lot of girth. People like that. I enjoy it. Yeah, but anyhow, the show. (laughs) Girth. Girth. A lot of girth. the best possible adjective someone can use to describe you. So uh, we're going to probably just go to, since you brought it up, let's go into the, the first one first and we'll go with uh joel m reed's 1976 i think was it 76 75 1975 75 okay off by a year um anthology it might have come out in 76 it might have been filmed in 75 not like it really matters it doesn't particularly matter uh his film bloodbath may before he made blood sucking freaks um this was his kind of entry into the horror genre and what an interesting filmmaker Joel M. Reed was because he mostly made crap. I mean, it was glorious crap. It's, I mean, it's awesome grindhouse stuff. But, I mean, as a filmmaker, he was much more of a, hey, I'm going to shoot this like a shoot, like, you, like, like it's a play. Because that's what all of his, um, his films end up feeling like. They all feel like uh, he never really has any backgrounds. He uses a lot of, like, black draping in the background or just or negative space and shadow. So it always just looks like, you know, like one man shows and bloodbath is like a German silent film. I mean, you've got a lot of early 1920s and 30s, uh, you know, Dada kind of art films that are just really basic sets and with nothing in it. And it's kind of unique with with Joel M. Reed of how artistic his backgrounds are, despite being just very blank. And sometimes, like you said, just curtains, which, again, is another intriguing thing, because almost all of his casts were pretty. Pretty, pretty high up there uh, thespians, you know, pretty well-known New York actors. So he didn't just use the the everyday extra. A lot of, uh, not a lot, but some some adult stars here and there, which is no qualms. But Well, the New York acting scene in the 70s was kind of crazy because the same people that were on Broadway, the same people who would show up in movies, and the same people would show up in porn films, acting was just a gig. You did all kinds of acting. You did commercials. Uh, you did plays, you did uh, musicals, and some of them would do porn because that's how you pay bills. So it's just kind of a really interesting vibe in well, that that's 70s what an actor era does. New York filmmaking. Yeah, an actor acts, so they get a gig and they do the gig. It's acting, it's a job, it's a lifestyle. Well, I mean, plus, if you really want to get into 70s porn, it was looked at incredibly different back then because, yes, it was... Um, it had hardcore scenes in it. You had people engaging in sexual activity, but a lot of those people just know this is just another acting job for me. And it's not until like mid to late 80s where porn became just like no story, no nothing, just like here's fucking. here's some sex. Watch it. It's just about fucking. So back in the 70s, it was just a little bit different where like it was it it was looked down upon still, but it wasn't like the worlds weren't completely like almost separate as they are now. Uh, which is kind of a shame. Well, you had major productions in the 1970s, too, though. Guys like the Mitchell Brothers and their theaters. It wasn't some small-time thing. They were doing Cecil B. DeMille remakes. They were soaking money into their pornography. And, and I mean, they're a, a whole different fucking story that we're getting completely off-subject on. But the 70s and pornography is a pretty unique subject, if you can get past, you know, a lot of butt-fucking and Jamie Gillis's dick. And, yeah, that's a whole different thing. It's a whole different well, world. If you look at a lot of Joel Reed's work, though, it does feel like a film by Rince Dream, um, who yeah. is also another pornographic filmmaker. Uh, his probably, and it's not his real name. I can't remember his real name currently, but um, 
he did all he did a cafe flesh uh which is a porn film he did um night dreams another porn film steven where, sayadin uh, right so what steven sayadin yeah i think so steven sayadin yeah. and well i mean and uh night dreams has the amazing scene where a woman literally fucks the man from a box of cream of wheat and he did uh, one of my personal favorite movies, which is Dr. Caligari from 1989. And if you know that Sour the Wall of Voodoo video he directed, it's kind of the same as Joel N. Reed. A lot, it, it looks like a stage production, a lot of black backdrops, a lot of negative space. You're not like feeling the, uh, the iris of the camera. You're just kind of focusing on the main thing, which is the actors and the story you're trying to tell. And that really what is what makes Bloodbath come off as feeling somewhat unique. He does have some sets, but the sets are all small. They're like one-room sets. Um, and the stories he chooses to... I think, well, we go outside once, maybe twice in the entire film. Two or three times, there are any exterior shots that aren't shot on some soundstage somewhere. And um, what's interesting about the movie is the wraparound story is confusing... And at the same time, incredibly stupid. <laughs> I like the wraparound story, but it's just kind of, it's basically about a guy who sells his soul to the devil by marrying the devil's daughter to make horror films, even though he doesn't believe in the supernatural. And all of his friends sit around a, uh, a dinner table and discuss real evil in the world. And that's where you get your, you know, your several different stories. And some of them are kind of amazing and some of them are, it's like a less very than amazing Z grade version of that movie about Mary Shelley and the creation of Frankenstein. Which is, uh, I guess like what I don't understand about the wraparound footage more than anything is we're presented with him marrying the, the devil's daughter. And then we just kind of forget that and move on. And like, I don't believe in the supernatural to tease it at the end that no, he really, this wasn't like a film he made. He really did marry. I don't know. I don't know what the shock and surprise is supposed to be at the end. Personally, when you find out he has a devil kid, well, they bring up at the beginning of the movie while they're discussing his lack of belief in the supernatural that he possibly had offspring with the devil. So they establish it at the very beginning after um, the, the first wraparound ends and it goes into the kind of plot of everything. And then it's dismissed until the end of the movie. And once you get to the end of the movie, you're kind of jarred and like, what the fuck's going on? Oh, yeah. Devil kid. Ah, which it was. Yeah, I guess that thing wasn't a film or a dream at the beginning of the movie. I guess that's the, the shock and surprise. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe if we'd established Devil Child a little bit more, it could have been a bit more enjoyable. But I didn't have a, I think the first time I watched it, I found it a little stuffy and hard to get through. And it's not because I have any issues with Joel M. Reed. I just didn't really enjoy it. And the second time, I think you got to just pay attention to a lot of the dialogue and just the witticism behind the characters. And one thing that I think really makes it enjoyable is Joel M. Reed is a very, very clever guy. All of the stories are kind of menacing and end with somebody's downfall and are unfortunate. And it's just his kind of bizarro, sarcastic humor. And that really plays through and you get to kind of see Joel M. Reed and see his sardonic nature. And it's, it's enjoyable. He was a very vibrant, um, interesting fellow. Well, a lot of the stories play out and feel like really, really bad episodes of like Night Gallery or something. But I mean, and some of them, some of these stories go beyond the pale and get really like kind of wild and interesting. And just like that Joe M. Reed madcap insan insanity that he's so famous for. Uh, and like the first story is about a serial killer slash hitman who's trying to bomb a mafioso 
puts a bomb in his car, and then later the car picks him up and the guy gives him his suitcase back and then he gets blown up. It's hey, like you forgot your suitcase. Yeah, it's just kind of like a it's a really just kind of run of the mill pretty bland storytelling of of an ironic situation which is what most films like this are about a lot of it stems from ec comics of just uh throwing in that ironic storytelling and just desserts and this one just he does it doesn't feel like there's a good just desserts at the end for me personally what was that show i think it was hbo maybe the hitcher or the hitchhiker it was a yeah yeah it's got that kind of flavor to it not necessarily good, but not necessarily bad. Definitely not suitable for Tales from the Crypts or Outer Limit or uh, maybe one of the higher rated shows, even Ramiro's show, Dark Side. It's not quite that level, but it's still, it could have been maybe Outer Limits instead of, uh, I think I said Outer Limits. Could have been the other one, but it's still, it's. Well, I mean, the Outer Limits usually had like a sci fi twist, and Twilight Zone kind of was really well written. And this is just kind of like. Here you go. It's it's like a issue of crime and suspense stories um, from EC Comics. It's just kind of like, eh, whatever. That one kind of sucked. Uh, what was the um, is oh the second one is the magic coin. This one does feel like a Twilight Zone episode. This was very I think, much one of my so. favorites, just because the ending is very nihilistic. And uh, as I had referenced a little while ago, Joel M. Reed kind of had a sardonic very sarcastic, um, I don't want to say negative, but he saw things on a different side of people or saw humor and enlightenment in the negative sometimes. And this story, I think, really is is the driving truth behind my statement because you have hopes for this guy. The way it's set up, you, you feel the annoyance, you feel his wife, you just want him to have some peace. And he makes, like, the most specific, bizarre fucking wish. You know, he has a very specific wish of being a wounded war veteran in the Napoleonic Wars and that he's a very well-known general and everything just goes so bad for him kind of monkey's paw style that you've got that nice historic feel you've got a very creepy uh you know background to the story but at the same time it's almost like three stooges the way it ends that it's you know like nelson from the simpsons (laughs) well i mean it's kind of picking at people who want to be displaced in time i want to go back to a uh, another time like i would love to go back to medieval times until you realize that you're going to be literally shitting in a hole in your backyard you're gonna get the and plague like, and die and that's kind of what the payoff of this one is a guy gets a magic coin wishes he's back in napoleon's war gets injured and while he wishes himself out of it while they're operating on him and the only thing that pops back to his time and place is his hand that's holding the coin that they were cutting off Wah, wah, just desserts, more irony. And I think, too, it has sort of an overall statement of uh, deal with what you're dealing with. At the beginning of the story, he begins wishing and wants to get away from his wife, who's very naggy and is being kind of a bitch to him. But regardless, he wishes himself away, and then that one part of him comes back. So just desserts for not dealing with the problem, not figuring out why you're happy. Pack up and fucking leave if you don't like things that much. It's got, and that's something, too, even with something like Bloodsucking Freaks, Reed definitely had a statement for what he was doing, and it might be pretty graphic, but regardless, it's still there. Um, a guy named John Walter Spuzner, who is the head of Deep Red Magazine, the revival of Chaz Ballon's Deep Red Magazine, he wrote a book, um, I believe, called Bloodsucking Freak, the story or the, ta- or the life of Joel M. Reed. You can find it, I believe, through Head Press. I want to say it's Head Press. I, I might be incorrect, but still, Google it yourself. Uh, Joel... Uh, John Walter Spuzner also wrote a book called Xerox Ferox, which gracefully mentioned us with a interview by Chris Gilpin. So quality guys, you can trust them. 
You know what we did forget to bring up in the the first segment though? The brief two second cameo of Sonny Landham. Oh when he (laughs) 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 Hello, I'm Sonny Landham and welcome to Sonny Landham. We may make jokes but it's not to take in light. Sonny Landon was a, an abuser of women and a pretty awful guy. But hey, he's dead now. And a porn star. So there you go. I think softcore, um, though. I don't know if that counts as much. But um, so uh, you're getting the vibe of where we're going with this. They're not particularly well thought out stories. Um, they're just kind of general run through. Get you to kind of a, a, a quick ending. Uh, I thought the next segment though works fairly well. The one that um, that it's about a guy. It's fucking Scrooge McDuck. He loves money. Oh, he loves having money to lord over people, and he loves to repossess items from people. And then he gets locked in a vault one night and gets haunted by the ghost of a guy who whose car he repossessed. A uh, young black man who ended up killing himself. I think a guy that's doing a hit- very bad Clarence Williams, the third from the mod squad impersonation. And it's just like, what are you going to do? And it's kind of like, it's more of a humorous take on, it's not like a, a dark story as much as it is. And this one kind of feels like a tales from the dark side episode very much. So, um, so Joel and Reed is spanning the wave of horror anthology throughout each and every segment of this uh, anthology film. This one, I mean, it works on its premise. Uh, it gets, it, it drags a little bit. I find this one to be a little bit more boring of them all, but it's still, it's probably one of the more better written ones. Um, what do you think the ending is of a guy who loves his money locked in his own vault? What What do you think happens if he can't get out for four weeks or whatever the fuck he was trapped in there? He has to eat his money. Oh, no. It's weird that they added this ghost element to it because the ghost didn't really... He just taunted them the entire time. I guess it gave the actor someone else to play off of. But in reality, the, the, like the, the ending, the Just Desserts ending, is in no way affected by the ghost whatsoever. Unless the, I mean, the ghost kind of got him trapped in there to begin with, but yeah. whatever. They definitely needed a reason for him to be trapped inside of the vault, so I think that's where the, the ghost comes in. The door just shuts behind him, and he forgets. The end. You don't need a ghost. Yeah, but then I think we would have been left with just a guy talking to himself, which which could have worked. He could have been imagining younger versions of himself here. I mean, we're dictating and, and taking apart a 40-year-old Joel M. Reed movie, but there was a lot of options, I guess, you could have had with it, but I enjoyed the ghost. I liked the kind of racial attitude. I like his performance, definitely, and Doris Roberts from Everybody Loves Raymond is in it, for fuck's sakes. It's weird. Well, it's got kind of a Larry Cohen vibe to me, feel. You know, it's kind of putting Whitey down and making you realize that not every person that's up in a well position deserves it, that they've worked their way there honestly and earnestly, that, you know, the bigger the rat, the worse they are kind of thing. And again, just looking back at Joel M. Reed and his statements, he definitely had a message throughout uh, his films. I mean, I think it's pretty prominent, especially with this series, this this uh, anthology film that he's made. Each story really does kind of have a Just Desserts, um, almost karmic value to it. That, you know, you, if you act like an asshole, if you're an asshole, you kind of get treated like one. And again, that kind of reappears in Bloodsucking Freaks also, which, you know, uh, Joe Bob just recently did. And it's a treat that it's being introduced or reintroduced to so many people. It's a shame that COVID-19 took Joel M. Reed from us, but I don't know if he was up to doing too much more. Well, he was like 86 years old. 
So, I mean, (laughs) the best days of his life were definitely past him at this point. Uh, Not that I'm sad that he's not sad that he's dead. It's just like when somebody's in their mid 80s, you can understand. It's like, okay, he had a good long life. Uh, I appreciate all the Joel Emery that I do have that I can go back to. And I think that was the driving point of this show. Um, I hadn't even seen this beforehand. This was one of your wonderful finds. And hopefully I saw it about 20 years ago for the first time. And I watched it. I was kind of I was more impressed with just about how he could orchestrate all of this stuff on what is a minuscule budget and able to pay off most of these stories for the for the most part. Um, and I really, I mean, we get deeper into it. Were there only four stories in this one? I think there's only four, aren't there? Yeah. And this was about a hundred thousand um, dollar budget. It really wasn't a lot of money, even for that time period. Because the fourth story is my fucking favorite story. Cause it's fucking insane. It is crazy insane. It's, it's worth the price of the rental alone just for this story, which is about a, uh, a white American who has learned all these secrets of martial arts. He's learned almost all of them. There's one left. It's it's like the tenth secret that he doesn't know. Um, yeah, he was for his particular style. The nine secrets of the Shaolin, or something like that. And he was like the only Westerner that was given the the sacred rights of learning these particular things. So it's kind of like the Bloodsport dude. I can't remember his name that came back and pretty much lied about all Frank the Frank Dukes. Yeah, Frank Dukes. All the things that he. I mean, because his career is probably mostly bullshit. So this is kind of a Frank Dukes before Frank. When he was claiming he was doing all the wild shit he did in life, this was predating it but again it's just it's such a sardonic tale everything in this is it's not negative it's, it's just, just kinda... so fucking crazy this one because what you have is and he's it's basically like deadbeat he, at dawn he has the, the, these martial arts skills but he's not treating them with respect because he's like pilfering money out of people to teach them these secrets it's kind of gonna cost you ten thousand dollars to learn the next secret i don't care you have to steal the money steal the money so then uh the monks of his particular martial art are after him. There's only one Asian dude in this entire thing, which is kind of interesting that the, the master is also another white motherfucker and in some particularly harsh, um, I I guess you would call it yellow face. Um, I thought it was Greg Allman at first, (laughs) but like, I don't know what statement you're making here, uh, Joel, because uh, you're doing kind of whatever you do a little bit of the same thing, but that's beside the point. And, um, He's the master challenges him to a fight eh, through uh, the shit that happens. You know, it takes a while to get there, but um, he challenges this guy to a fight. And eventually he shows him the 10th secret because the, the master himself, he's had his legs, his arms. He amputated himself so he could kill a powerful warlord. And he's been alive for hundreds of years at this point just to interrupt you let's talk about that scene for a second because it's probably the most bat shit in this entire segment i mean <laughs> oh, it's not it's close but it gets weirder i i just love it he cuts off one arm and then he cuts off uh what a leg and then the other leg oh, he cuts off yeah he cuts off his because the final arm is, he, he just lays it on this wooden stump and then just raises himself up and just lops the other arm off after he's gotten rid of his other three limbs and just the most unbelievable but oddly hysterical and pleasing sequence of gore. And this isn't particularly anywhere near as violent or graphic as blood-sucking freaks. There's a lot of, uh, you know, red splatter, but it's very quick old-school cuts, just allowing you to get a little bit of teasing of the gore. But that teasing 
is is just trademark Joel M. Reed because the the little bit you see is pretty disgusting and it, it to me motivates you to finish the movie. You just want to see is it gonna get weirder and it does. Well, like it's been pretty like neutral from the the point of the beginning of the film to this point where it hasn't gotten too like nuts or too bloody at all. And then all of a sudden we start entering into like really gallows type humor. And the story itself takes a while to play out of how this guy lost his arms and his legs, all these different things. But at the end of the day, what is the tense secret? He breathes fire at the guy when he pulls a gun on him. It's a pretty good secret. He could just breathe fire out of fucking nowhere. He's Scorpion from Mortal Kombat now. Get over here! But it gets fucking crazier than that. That weird scene of this dude just like death breath, like fireballs at this guy. The guy lives. He actually did kill the master, but he had to sacrifice his body to do it. So now the only thing that's left is a head that is somehow wired into some large black box that he has no body left. He's just a living head. What the fuck is going on? Where the fuck did he get this ending? Maybe it was a lack of writing, but my biggest question is who constructed this? Who was left to make him the guy from the Ninja Turtles, Krang, I think his name was. Remember that, the Ninja Turtles cartoon? The brain? Yeah, the brain um, and the big guy walking around. Well, they, like, because he's offered, if he beats the master, he's offered all these riches, and he's offered this this virgin bride, and that's who, like, after he wakes up from after this fight or whatever, before he realizes he has no body, I think that's the maybe the ultimate like kick in the nuts for this character is that he doesn't have nuts anymore because he was so excited to have this virgin bride and all that and now he can't even do anything about it because he's just a head connected to a black box with some christmas lights added to it it's fucking nuts it's one of my favorite reveals in film history of just like wait a minute what i mean this has been mostly somewhat reality based and then it, i mean reality figuratively speaking, of course, but we go into some weird sci-fi shit all of a sudden towards the end of, of this whole film, which just I found incredibly interesting. It's kind of like your favorite movie, The Possession. It gets their just desserts by removing whatever form of pleasure they can actually obtain. I definitely liked the second story and the, the whole thing a little bit more, and this one I didn't find That's anywhere... like my least favorite. I didn't find this one as negative, and, you know, let's just look at me, Mr. Negativity. I I just like the displeasing not it's not anti-human. I really don't feel any of Joel M. Reed's work is anti-human. I think it's more or less maybe anti-asshole. Uh, he he had a smirk with everything he did. You know, he's kind of a Caesar Romero joker. It it had a pun, it had a little bump bump to it and I find everything about it pleasing, but the more um bizarre it is, like blood-sucking freaks, the more just awful it is is where I start finding a little bit more enjoyment because I just can relate to that level of depravity in humor i i love that idea of being as dismal as possible just for the joke and i think you know as a performer and a as an, an artist i think that was a big thing with with i mean just in my head with joel m reed was uh, humor behind things and humor is just like art it can be taken a thousand different ways you can take or you know not like a joke just like putting air conditioning in all the buildings back east because it's cold this film strikes me as probably the most Joel M. Reed. I think he's most associated with uh, Bloodsucking Freaks and then yeah. maybe after that G.I. Executioner even. But I think this fits his personality more. He's like a 
kind of a vivacious, interesting, kooky dude. And he made this like kooky movie. And he will always be represented as like this kind of a sleaze merchant with blood sucking freaks. Because let me tell you, when you see what people's first reactions are to blood sucking freaks, you see kind of wow. I like I saw that movie maybe 30 years ago and yeah, it shocked me at the time, but I've grown to live with it. But hearing people's first like new responses to blood sucking freaks is like, okay, yeah, I forgot. This movie is kind of fucking batshit insane. It does go some weird places. With Joe Bob recently doing it and Twitter, Facebook, all the different venues you can read people's reaction, it was almost enlightening and beautiful just seeing so many people shocked and upset for, for this movie that is pretty old at this point. You know, there's so many things, like a Serbian film. There's so many other movies that have done incredibly shocking things in pretty beautiful high definition that are shot exquisitely and artistically. And then you can go back to 42nd Street to this sleazy, greasy-ass grindhouse movie and people are just as shocked. And I, I guess what I love about it is it's refreshing to be able to horrify people. And just like you mentioned, having seen this movie years ago, this was a staple of my basement when I was a teenager. If you came over to smoke pot and hang out with me after fucking class, you were going to watch something like this or cannibal Holocaust. I loved showing that to people, but blood sucking freaks was always one of those, especially fun late at night, Friday movies when you could score some beer and some shitty Mexican brick weed and just really disgust and freak out your kind of normie friends. And it, it was just, amazing scrolling through Twitter and looking at the hashtag and seeing Darcy dealing with just so many people. I've never seen this. This is horrible. This is disgusting. What is this? Just like when the movie came out, Joel M reads forever because of how he, he can always, this movie's going to shock people in 20 years. It's just wonderful. What so ends up being so shocking. I think about blood sucking freaks is you do have all these other films that are, you know, push boundaries but those films are always usually taken dead serious and the direction, the story, everything that's going on, blood sucking freaks, everybody looks like it's one big joke and they're having a bunch of fun while a bunch of really negative shit happens to people all around them. And I think that's really like what's intriguing about blood sucking freaks more than anything is just, it's a comedy. It's abhorrent, but it's a comedy uh, at the same time with a Serbian film. No, like no one's really, expecting to go into those films and have a like a whole bucket full of laughs. But with Bloodsucking Freaks, you get uncomfortable because you are finding a lot of it so humorous. Well, I guess that's a problem with me as a viewer, because when I went into a Serbian film, for example, I was expecting to be completely shocked, and I was expecting something absolutely stunning and new, and I took it more as a comedy than anything else. And I've been told by, I had this argument with David Hess, God rest his soul, you, you don't know about Serbian culture, you don't understand, I don't care. And I shouldn't have to know a whole book's worth of knowledge to understand this piece of art. To me, I thought it was funny. You're, I'm trying to push boundaries, I'm trying to do the most shocking offensive thing possible, so you're just gonna fuck newborns, okay? All right, I mean, it's it's incredibly shocking, it's graphic, it's vulgar, it's abhorrent, it's violent, it's whatever, but at the same time, you're not pushing any absolute boundaries, you're just pushing people's buttons, and Joel M. Reed, on the other hand, found a way to push the boundary and your buttons, and there's something that works more successfully than that. And it's, you know, again, not like a negative reviewer trying to talk shit about a Serbian film, because I think it's beautiful, I think it's shot incredibly well, I think it's written well, but I also think it's kind of funny 
because of its uh, over-impending nature of attempting to shock you. And for, at the same time, they're just like Joel M. Reed and Bloodsucking Freaks and people discovering it right now and being shocked by it. There are people that haven't had their buttons pushed or sat and viewed and seen as much weird shit as I have that were deeply much more affected by a Serbian film. So it's it's hard. That's It's a hard subject because I don't want to you know, completely talk poorly of it, but I'm absolutely not a 100% fan of it at the same time. I thought it sucked. I don't like that movie at all. And it's not because I was like torn into two by all the things it discusses. It's just, I, I thought it was terribly written. I think it, a lot of it was an excuse to have shocking things and to shock an audience and to make a name for themselves. Yeah, I just found it more than anything kind of fucking boring it just the buttons it pushed were the easiest buttons you could possibly push on a person and i think that's the difference in bloodsucking freaks is it's punching all kinds of buttons but the one you don't expect it to punch more than anything is your fucking funny bone because it's just still like you laugh so much through it because it's just so ridiculous and you have ralphus for god's sakes ralphus he's a horror fucking icon at this stage in history i hope i hope more ralphus shirts get made everyone Pull together. Fright rags. Ralph's shirts, please. Well, that's what I mean, sort of, with the problems of a Serbian film. It should not make me laugh. It isn't the direction that movie was attempting to take, and by no means do I think newborn porn is funny. But I don't know, the way it's presented to you is kind of funny to me. We're pushing boundaries. Aren't you ready to see the new thing? Newborn porn. I mean, it's like some over-the-top Udo Kier, Andy Warhol performance. I, I don't know. Again, like, that's a good reference there. Maybe if somebody like Warhol had done a Serbian film in the 70s, it would have had some glitz and glamour and a different feeling to it. But again, I don't... Not intentionally trying to downplay it. It, it serves a purpose, and it has its place, and it's been... Uh, it's it's going to be one of those things like Last House on Dead End Street in 40 years. You know, people are going to be talking about a Serbian film uh, on that level, but I don't think it's comparable to Roger Watkins at all. Not even close, but we're off the subject completely. Truly. Let's move back to anthology films. I enjoy Bloodbath, though. I would say it's one of the better movies on the list. Do you have a, a rank for it? Do you have a cult point rating? Uh, I would give it maybe... A four on director alone, four cult points. But as far as a, like a a quality rating, maybe two, two and a half. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. Two stars, two or four cult points. I mean, it's a pretty fair rating. It's not necessarily a bad movie. It's more enjoyable if you can enjoy the deep level of sarcasm behind it. All right. Sticking to What's the up? 1970s, we're moving into a movie that you could easily mistake for an Amicus production, but it's actually by, oh god, I know some of it was filmed at Pinewood Studios in England, but most of it was filmed in Montreal and Quebec. I think it was filmed by the, yeah, the Rank Organization, though it was still produced by Milton Subotowski, the main man behind all of the great Amicus movies. I personally uh, like Amicus a little bit more than Hammer, just because... I don't know, it's goofier, it's closer to, like, EC Comics, it's got more of a spooky-ooky, theremin, just late-night movie feel to it, and Hammer is so serious. This has, again, like I, I referenced, you'd easily mistake this for an Amicus movie. It's got all the right players. You got Peter Cushing, Donald Pleasant, Samantha Egger, I don't, I think I've neglected to say the title of the movie, The Uncanny, The Uncanny from 1977. It's a cat lover's dream. 
I, I'll go into this saying it's not necessarily the best movie, but it's maybe a guilty pleasure sort of thing. It's a great midnight movie. It's a nice October stormy night, uh, bad weather sort of thing. And it does have this, you know, kind of creeping English feel to it. But for the most part, it's French. A few of the rapper or not wraparound, a few of the segments in the anthology have been redubbed or dubbed because they were, in fact, done in, in French. Uh, where do we start off with this? So the wraparound is Peter Cushing is a writer, kind of a, a strange man that is very against cats and felines, who is attempting to get his novel published and goes to his publisher while being followed by cats, who has a cat that judges all of his writing. It all ties in together. And the b story begins with Peter Cushing telling his first piece of writing to his the first guy. cat centric. He's writing like stories about cat centric murders. Of the supernatural sort. It's a really weird premise for a book or a movie. Well, he's certain that cats have some sort of connection with the devil and that felines are responsible for all of these bad things. So all of the stories that he presents have cats as the downfall. But what becomes unique as the stories progress is all of the people are kind of absolutely awful, sort of like in Long Weekend, which we talked about on the last episode, and get their just desserts. The first one starting with an elderly millionaire-s, whatever the fuck you want to call it, who is on her deathbed, and her children just aren't up to par, so she decides to leave everything to her cats unless they step up and take care of them, in which they instantly devise a scheme to kill her. Just by doing so, the cats are very upset, they witnessed it, and they turn around and wreak absolute havoc on them, all while eating the body of their owner. And like I had referenced with the last Joel M. Reed picture, this movie has some particularly nice scenes of violence, but they're all very quick-cut, old-school, uh, Hammer, Amicus-esque. You get to see some nice graphic detail, but it's always very fast, and specifically out of the entire movie, I think one of the greatest sequences is this very first introduction, because you get to see the cats eating her. That's not something you really got a lot of shock value of in the 70s, and they're all really pretty little house cats just gnawing and eating this woman alive, and the moral of the story is uh, don't lie to people or cats will eat you. I don't know. Well, this first story, yeah, it does have kind of a, a punch in the gut ending with a little bit of violence, a little bit of a, you know, a mutilated corpse that the special effects are okay on. You don't get to see much of it, but it's there. Very, very good. But quick. the story itself is about a lady getting chased around a, like an old house by killer cats. And I just, I had to pick up the phone and I just started scrolling through Twitter. Oh, I really? Just, it, it just, I did not Well, admittedly, you have to address it, the fact that you do not care for Amicus or Hammer that much. And this I is like, just... Yes, I, I don't particularly care for Hammer. I like Amicus more than I like Hammer because uh, I, I like the Tales from the Crypt uh, movie they did. I like the Vault of Horror movie they did. I like a lot of their anthology movies all and Milton some of their Sabatowski other too. I mean, it's all the same producer for most of those. But like this era of late '60s and through the '70s British horror filmmaking, it's touch and go for me. You have to have a really good premise, and Peter Cushing does help this out a lot. Peter Cushing's in this as well as Donald Pleasance, who's coming up in a different story. Those actors do help, the, if the, but they weren't in this film. I would just be so fucking bored out of my mind because the stories just aren't that great. Like, it's a okay. It's a we're we're killing her for her money, which is the staple of any you know irony fucking just desserts EC Comics type story. And the revenge 
wreaked upon these people is just it's fucking cats looking trying to look menacing and i'm sorry they've done this several times in, in horror films there's nine of a thousand cats there's um cat people uh the tales from the dark side segment it's hard to make kitties look fucking mean and angry to me i just don't fear them ever they're just like oh it's a little sweet baby it's a sweet baby kitty i just want to pet them so like a horde of cats coming after me to kill me does not instill any sort of fear in me whatsoever and that's my problem with the first segment more than anything the second segment gets a little bit different it's not so much about a killer cat i mean it's there but it's not just kind of the atypical story of like sleepwalkers where it's just like killer cats don't they look menacing no they're sweet babies i want to hug them i don't i don't fear them at all ever I think that's sort of the fun I have with the very first segment is how cute and adorable the cats are and just the ferocity behind it that they kill the cat's owner, but the cats are still starving, so they're eating their owner while attacking the other people because they know that they've caused harm to them. So I just maybe like the fantasy and idea of something bad happened to me that my beloved cats would feed upon me for sustenance and also kill any attacker. But... That's romanticism. The second part of the story takes place, I believe, in 1975 in Quebec, and it's about an orphan named Lucy whose parents died in a plane crash that is forced to go live with her aunt and uncle and bitchy cousin. She has an adorable cat, the one connection to her parents that just kind of keeps her going, which instantly her aunt cannot stand, and her cousin just is very jealous over having. And this cousin is just a sociopathic fucking bitch. She is one nasty chick. This girl's parents die in a plane crash, so she decides to get an RC remote control plane and chase her around with it. But she decides if she can't have a cat, that her cousin shouldn't be able to have one either. So she pushes and pushes and pushes for her to lose the cat until finally, setting things up appropriately, the stepmother snaps, has the cat taken away. But this little girl's mother may or may not have been a witch and bestowed upon her before her death some tombs and novels and all sorts of stuff that could help conjure the dark spirits to which she uses to her advantage to shrink her shitty ass cousin into a tiny little rat person, which is appropriately stomped on. I love it. This one has everything that you would want out of a horror story. You get emotion. You got an adorable cat that you almost think is going to die. And I love the fact that the cats don't die. It's a nice change of pace not having the animal killed. And then you get the absolute perfect just desserts of everyone that hurt this little girl and her cat. The mother eventually is going to be absolutely horrified and, and upset and broken that her daughter never comes home. The father will probably get broken and start drinking and then beating the mother and then the mother will kill the father in a murder-suicide and kill herself. But at this point in time, it'll probably leave the little girl to be an heiress and make millions of dollars to start a psychic cat kingdom. Uh, maybe. A psychic cat kingdom. I was projecting a little um, bit, but not all of that's in the movie. I'm sorry. This is probably the best out of all the stories, although Agreed. I think the beginning part of it, hardcore drags, um, although the ending gets a, a lot more interesting. Um, it has some of the worst, quote-unquote, big effects I've ever seen. By like When you have someone who gets shrunk, you know, have to interact with large props. They make it look like they're, you know, they're tiny and the props are really poorly made. But whatever, that adds some like some kitsch value to me altogether. I, I didn't hate this segment. I just I, again, I thought it dragged a little long for what the ending ultimately was. But it, it's probably the best segment in this whole myriad of kind of 
boring. I, I'm not a big fan of the uncanny, if you can't tell. <laughs> the ending being somebody getting squished. Yeah, I'm not, you know, and I, this was kind of a back and forth between us as we were doing the movies. It's not particularly that all of them are good nor bad. You clearly don't care for this one. I enjoyed it just because of the feline, you know, addition. But I just wanted to add something maybe a little different. Uh, you, you know, as I mentioned, aren't a big Hammer fan, so it's hard sneaking those in. It's hard getting those British movies <laughs> in there. I wanted. To, I was like, oh, this is this is fucking Canadian. It's it's the rank organization. He won't notice. It's probably an amicus man. It's as never, soon it's... as you said Peter Cushing, I would just be like, all right, I know where we're going with this '70s Peter Cushing suite. Well, two, when we began planning this, I believe I said to you, I don't know, I know one of them, but I'll do some Peter Cushing shit, probably. And lo and behold, here it is. And it is really a saving grace for this movie. Cushing is enjoyable in, in pretty much anything he does. And what's really unique is is at the beginning of the movie shows him. And he's just, you know, a wiry guy walking through the street, and he's attempting to get to his publisher's office. But he, you know, he talks to somebody who wants a cigarette, and you instantly kind of get to see... The character and Peter Cushing's, you know, I don't smoke. And he, he walks away. He's very stuffy. He's very upset about these cats following him. And, and it's just the type of actor that Peter Cushing was, that he could fall into a role. And despite the fact that you've seen him a thousand times as Van Helsing, you've seen him in, in Star Wars, you know him from all these other roles, his face almost changes. His body almost molds and becomes whatever he's playing. And in this instance, he's just kind of a meek very paranoid person and it's just how peter cushing's talent uh shows and evolves as an actor it's really kind of mesmerizing to see him throughout different roles playing cowards and heroes and doctors and evil guys it's he's just a great guy i can watch anything with peter cushing in it i mean i can watch peter cushing's performances but it just depends on the my i think my big problem with a lot of amicus stuff a lot of hammer stuff is they all almost feel like they were made by the same filmmaker and once I've seen one or two of them, I just like, okay, I, I get the general gist of where this is going. I, know, I understand the production value. There are a few twists in some of them. Um, I, like, as far as anthology goes, what is it? Um, Peter Cushing's in Amicus's, uh, is it Dr. Tear's House of Horrors? Yes. Um, yeah, like, I like that one. I think Donald Sutherland's in that one, too, isn't he? <laughs> um, I like Tales from the Crypt. I, I mean, uh, I don't think Cushing's in Tales that. Tales from the Crypt I like. Yeah, he's in the original Tales from the Crypt. He plays the old guy that, remember? I, I honestly don't. I've not, I've not seen it so many years. I just know I like Tales from the oh, Crypt. Okay. So I'm sure it's Amicus or Hammer. Peter Cushing is going to appear in pretty much everything, and that's a problem, too, even with, you know, not remembering the more Amicus and Hammer you've seen, the harder it is to remember which movie's which. I mean, Dracula AD 1972 could be one of 30 movies that you could show me a clip of, and I don't know. They all run together. Yeah, that's kind of like my issue with them. I don't think they're all horrible. Some of them are more boring than the other ones, but it's just like, oh my god, this is almost the exact same fucking movie that I j just saw a few nights ago. So it's just something I've dabbled in, I jump in and out of. It's not something I, like, I will go and binge british horror from the 1960s and 70s it just doesn't particularly do it for me i know a, some about it it's just not my bag though uh what was the uh the third story third story begins in 1936 and it's about a very famous hollywood actor played by i think his name was valentine like death it's death but they called him vd appropriately it's played by the very very drunk donald pleasance um maybe before he was absolutely too far gone as a drunk 
probably shouldn't begin the review just negatively discussing a beloved horror star, but man, Donald Pleasance really liked to drink. He decides that he's tired of his wife, so he replaces a prop on the movie set that they're working on together, a pendulum, and she is killed by it. He wants to replace her with a younger, more attractive understudy that looks just like her. But all the while, after he ejects his wife's cat, wife's, dead wife's cat, rather, felines begin kind of plotting against him, and it becomes, again, to reference the Three Stooges, kind of a satirical slapstick thing of cats chewing through wires, attempting to get him killed until... Things work negatively against him, and Cat got his tongue. But ump bump. Well, see, that's uh, where my I, I have a problem with this one. It's the exact same story as the first one. Fucking evil cat doesn't like what you did. Evil cat's gonna come and get you. It's just like I just there's, there's almost. The only difference with the second story is it's an evil little girl with a cat. So primarily, yes. they're kind of all the same story. And I just, I like, I just don't find that interesting. A fucking cat going to attack somebody. Donald Pleasance is great in it, like, because he's just fun to watch in anything. But the story itself is just bland as fuck. Well, I mean, in reality, yeah, a cat probably wouldn't do this. But the suspended disbelief that our villains are mostly a cat trying to put just desserts on a scumbag, I think, is the point of enjoyment here of this innocent, beautiful little fuzzy baby you just want to pick up and give a tummy rub to and, and tell it it's a good little boy or girl is viciously attacking this guy because of its sense of judgment because it put out a cat. So, you know, it's like Long Weekend or The Birds. It's more of a Hitchcockian aspect of them mentally attacking back against wrongdoers, which is a lot. I'm asking for a lot. But at the same time, it's a pretty cheesy... I don't know the budget here, but I'm not going to think it's over a million dollars. It's a very loose uh, shoot and run. Let's get this into a theater and try and make some money off it type of motion picture. But again, it's like a guilty pleasure sort of thing. This is a great midnight movie. I can't figure out what to watch. Find the Uncanny from 1977, which you should be able to find widely. <clears throat> YouTube. Maybe it's on YouTube. And check it out. It's not a winner by any means. I mean, let's uh, giving it a straight review here. It's a two and two, both, you know, that might even be too much. I'm going to, a one and a half as a movie, regular points, and two cult points. It's not a high-rated movie, but again, you've got a little bit of fun. I like Donald Pleasance in it. He's not overly drunk. He's not too bloated and shitty. He does, There's a scene toward the end where he's trying to teach somebody how to scream, and I find it hysterical. They're in this... Uh, awful torture box where the you know the Spanish Inquisition thing where the spikes come in on the coffin and they press and kill you and he's just you know bellowing out uh, this great scream and he plays a very uh, rude uh, misogynistic douchebag character and he does it very well you know he p could play a villain very very well and maybe it's because he was drunk and mad at everyone the entire time moral of the story the uncanny Donald Pleasance was a drunk. I would have to agree with your rating, and you say it's a good midnight movie, but I would replace your midnight screening of The Uncanny with a midnight screening of Cat's Eye, because I think that's an anthology film that involves cats that really has some payoff, mostly because they don't focus on the cat so much. The cat's integral into all the stories, but it's not a story about a cat until the ending, and then it fights a, an awesome little troll with good, giant, big effects. So I really, I have to go with Cat's Eye over The Uncanny. It's way more enjoyable to me. And I don't even think Cat's Eye is that great of a movie. It's, it's, uh, it's a little, 
you know, it's not one of Louis Teague's best efforts, but it's definitely watchable and it's entertaining to say the least. I'd get Cat's Eye probably a two and a half to three over the the one and a half I would give the Uncanny though. What I'll give you is if you watch Cat's Eye, you could do it as a midnight double feature around two in the morning with the Uncanny. So watch Cat's Eye then the Uncanny, or don't. I don't know. Fuck me. Fuck fuck my opinion. It doesn't matter. Watch it. Don't watch it. Thankfully, if you didn't like The Uncanny and found that a very uh, dreary review, it's Alexander Nash's turn. Oh, what should I go with next? Huh. Let's go with a movie from 1989, uh, a movie that begs the question, how do I get my college film shorts to make money for me? I put them in an anthology film. That's how I do it. It also brings forth the immortal question of how much Daniel Roebuck is too much Daniel Roebuck? I'd say about two and a half hours is too much Daniel Roebuck. An hour and a half, 90 minutes is good. Yeah, I mean, we're pushing some Roebuck limits in this movie, but it's not bad. It's a movie called Terror Eyes. E-Y-E-S. Terror Eyes. Which was the uh, alternate title in England for... um, Oh, shit. What is that movie? It's got Rachel Ward in it. Night School. Night School. Um, Night School. Didn't this have another title, an additional title? I don't think so. I think it was just Terrorize. I might be wrong about that, though, completely, because I didn't do any research. I watched the movie. Um, This is one I saw on the video store shelves a long time ago and never rented it, and then eventually caught up with it when internet became a thing. And I think the thing that always really intrigued me was the design of the the devil character into it because they made it incredibly wall-eyed in their special effects. I thought it was, it was kind of an interesting design, though. Like um, an ant monster. This is a mess of an anthology film because, as I stated before, it seems like an excuse to kind of... It seems like two of the stories in it were previously shot as shorts and they shot a new story and a wraparound to kind of put it in a package that's what the whole thing feels like to me because um part of it was written by vivian Schilling. well the anthology itself changes doesn't it i mean we we, say what well we begin with a a one part of the anthology or one part of the wraparound and then it changes so we go from one direction to another direction all while maintaining you know that it's uh the hollywood writer strike and how are horror movies going to produce what's the devil going to do so you begin with a writer attempting a non-writer i'm sorry i think she's an executive for a movie producing company who's attempting to write a, a horror script for the first time and the devil comes Woo. well and vivian Schilling was um you remember from uh, soul taker the classic mystery science theater 3000 film she was the star and writer of that as well and she wrote at least part of this movie with uh, one of her colleagues and and stars in it the and stars in it as well with Daniel Roebuck but it, the wraparound is so confusing because it's almost not a wraparound because she is she is a i think she's a secretary at a casting agency or, or something or like a marketing agency yeah. her husband makes a is. reference i think during the second part of the wraparound story that she has a like a master's degree in something or another and that she's working as a secretary for a film production company but it all is pending on that the very beginning of the movie tells you this takes place during a hollywood writer strike and that's why the devil wants to get involved because when there are no horror movies being made, then the devil doesn't get his due because he loves horror. 
okay, that's a little bit weak, but whatever, we'll go into it. I'll and take it. the first story is a nightmare that the chick writing the anthology film has. So she stars as a different character um, of a housewife to a redneck dude. They're both kind of white trash redneck people. And Daniel Roebuck shows up and hands them a book of the book of life, which basically details everything that has ever happened to them as a couple and everything that's going to happen to them. So, Oh, the book can predict the future and it freaks them out. So they try to destroy the book and the book tells them that, Hey, you're going to die on this date. Not it's before today. it tells them for no absolute reason that somebody's going to come looking for the book, but be mistaken that it's not their book that has absolutely nothing to do with the story outside of wasting a good three and four minutes. Padding. It almost Padding. plays off like an old Robert Stack unsolved mysteries. And basically, okay, you're going to die, and I'm going to pour acid on this book to get rid of it because it's freaking me out, and the acid causes some sort of chlorine gas cloud that melts the dude's face off. What I will say has some good special effects, some pretty decent special effects in that scene, and he does die, and then she wakes up from the nightmare. So it's not even a story she wrote. It's just a nightmare she had, and Daniel Roebuck is actually her husband. But the book tells you that he's supposed to die from suicide or at his own hands, but he melts by his own hands. Yeah, I don't know. None of that ends up making sense in the long run. But what I will give that very first segment is it's like Sam Raimi level disgusting. It's a nice touch of gore. I think out of everything we've discussed tonight, this is probably one of the top pieces of absolute violence we have. Yeah, it's a it's a nice effect. I mean, they made a um, a fucking dummy of the dude and it actually looks like him his face is melted off it's actually fairly well done i'll give him that um from this point on though she still needs to write so she and her husband are gonna go on a camping trip with four fucking strangers it seems because when they pick them up in this van they all introduce each other i don't know how these people are involved or know each other but apparently they don't, but they're all going to go on a camping trip it's together. It's kind of like the beginning of Spookies, just a bunch of random motherfuckers that somehow are all together, and there's no explanation. It's not even loose. They're just there. They're just people. And they go out into the middle of the woods, and Roebuck goes to take a piss, and he gets t- killed and taken over by the devil, who starts going crazy and encouraging them all, the people around the campfire, to tell their story so she can have something to write. And um, one of the dudes from Wayne's World, <laughs> yes, one of Wayne's crew, uh, plays not a guy. Lee Turgenson. It's not famed actor Lee Turgenson. I'll give you that much. It is. Um, and he tells a story about something that happened to him where he murdered someone. Um, but hey, it's about. I um, guess I shouldn't have told that story. How do you guys feel about camping with a convicted felon? That's the performance. It's <laughs> like, fucking verbatim. This seems completely separate. It seems like they shot this wraparound footage later to this segment because the hairstyles change. It just seems like it was shot at a completely different time period, and they just got this actor back to introduce this as some sort of story within an anthology film. And it's just about a guy who's unlucky, and his friend-slash-nemesis sends him on a burglary that will like inevitably get him killed and he keeps repeating time and <clears throat> so he can um like figure out how he doesn't get killed this time or doesn't get hurt or doesn't so he just keeps repeating time and then he just like finally doesn't make the same mistakes again and a cop car hits him 
Yeah, it's like an R-rated quantum leap with a womp 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 ending. This is what happens when the computer doesn't turn things right out for Sam and he gets hit by a car. Yeah, it's a really bad story because it doesn't like the first segment had some special effects. It had some kind of some sort of paranormal sort of thing going on. And this one just feels like a really bad episode of The Hitcher, as Hank was stating before The Hitchhiker. Um, It's just kind of really stupid. It's just a crime story that has kind of a supernatural element into it. And the payoff is just particularly lame. I find it just, it feels out of place in this horror film because it just doesn't feel like a horror segment to me. Even over the hitcher, it's kind of like one of those late era British uh, tales from the crypt episodes. It's like when they did that, it wasn't British, but when they did that God awful Humphrey Bogart one, it's just lame for the sake. It's not lame for the sake of being lame. I'm sure some, some intent was pushed into it, but starting things off after the, kind of ooky spooky we're going camping and there's a deal with the devil with this mafia twist it doesn't i mean it's like a bad episode of quantum leap he fucks up three times in a row and you get kind of clever at the middle or the very ending of it where he starts interrupting the guy and telling him what he's going to say first and you get the hope at the end he does the old fake gun trick and gets the weapons from him and everything's turning out millhouse and it's great oh, he gets hit by a car there's there's not a lot to celebrate. There's not anything to hope for. Like all right, it's just a really lamely written segment. It's just it has no innovation to it. It's something that a high school student would come up with, and it does feel like a college short that someone did. Like here, you, you make a twenty minute short film about something, and this was their idea that they had, and it's just kind of like it's just dry. It's dry as all fuck. It's a bad monkey's paw sort of thing. And then the last segment, I think, is the best segment in the film for me. Um, but it's shot on video. So that tells me it was not shot for this anthology film. It's shot on a completely different style of camera, film, whatever. It's shot on video. Um, and it's about a feminist chess player. <coughs> the most world-famous <laughs> feminist chess player. She's like worldwide renowned Olympic level feminist chess player, which is sort of an odd character arc to give somebody, but hey. And this feminist chess player has said some particularly derogatory things about a video game designer who is this kind of misogynistic dickhole who makes, like, uh, he made a rapey video game. Like, quite literally, you just rape a woman, Atari style. Um, And he kidnaps her and puts her in a maze for her to, like, use her quick thinking skills to get out of it actual games that existed at the time i know there was one that was i think um general custer uh, against I custer's order, last stand yeah custer's last stand so there were a lot of actual atari and dos games that were pretty similar that you know like custer's last stand the point was to rape and kill indians or native americans i'm sorry that also is an insensitive term regardless it's based so it, you're kind of doing something dated here and it doesn't play off now because i mean even with grand theft auto and games where you can beat the shit out of hookers there isn't something as explicit outside of deep wed games where you rape people that's got a point but this this honestly felt the t- like the tightest segment and it seemed to have the most kind of production value even though it was shot on video it seemed like again another college short film but uh, overall, I think the the impact is there. Um, it's a decent enough story. The production values are, for the most part, there. 
Um, You've got at least sets in this one. I mean, there are cool different levels of this maze that she has to go through, and all of them are somewhat intricate. You've got the very bizarre black and white Twin Peaksy dice room, and then the weird cowboy setting at the end with the laser guns. So there's a little bit of effort and you know design put into things here. Yeah, I mean, they they spent some time and some energy on it. It feels oddly out of place in this anthology film, though. As the second segment felt somewhat out of place, this one really feels out of place. Again, still probably the best segment. It just doesn't seem to mesh with everything else that's going on around it. Because you think the devil would want some kind of more interesting stories than what's been presented in, in, in this film. It's just kind of like, I need you to write a horror film and... I want most of the stories have nothing to do with horror. They're not even like really horror segments at all. So it just, they, a lot of them just feel out of place within the framework of what they've created as the, the, the wraparound footage. But, um, I give this movie a B on tenacity, uh, for probably having no budget for probably not even starting out as a, a, like an, an idea to make a film or an anthology film more of a, how do we make money off of something we've previously done? Uh, it's a notable effort. I mean, it, it's, I'll give them props for that, but overall there's probably a reason why it's never really left VHS. I don't think anybody cares, but I don't know if anybody owns it. Vinegar syndrome, get on that shit. I think the biggest problem with this is is there's just no connection to things. You've got a loose connection with the wraparound story, which is more than likely the most enjoyable part of it. You just kind of want to see yes. what the devil's going to do. Everything in between, it's just filler. You know, it's mashed potatoes. It's not a bad midnight movie like I had referenced with The Uncanny, but you could probably find something a little bit better. This is taking a bunch of bong rips with your friend and trying to get to the bottom of barrel of weird fucking psychotronic stuff. It, there's no really faults on the movie. I mean, it, it's fun and pleasant to get through. It just kind of drags, and you get disappointed toward the end because nothing connects. I mean, all right, yeah, the wraparound story. It's the devil, and uh, and that's it. I mean, you just kind of got to You know what I've been missing in all these films so far, though? I'm missing, like, a monster element. I'm missing some sort of bombastic element because they're all just kind of wah-wah stories. There's, there's no, like, real payoff to any of them there's no like like the the biggest payoff you have is the uh, the karate master breathing fire and that's one segment in one of these films and the rest of it is just kind of like the story writing is just really bland i need some something i need some exploitive elements and there's just not any it's just kind of like ironic stories that you wrote in high school I whatever because of Ramiro and having Creep Show, everything is very hard to get over that because there's not more perfection than something like Creep Show. You have every monster aspect, every horror aspect. The movie itself is kind of ethereal of how creepy it is, hence the title Creep Show. So when you try and compare anything to how perfect that is, there's just a thousand, it's like a Rubik's Cube. There's a thousand different ways you can try and find patterns of what's going to make a good anthology movie. And a big problem, just like this one, is a lot of the times it's just short films shoved together with a very loose wraparound, and there's not a firm and tight connection to what things are. And what the key to an anthology film, and initially there was another movie that would be on this list that was removed, is the wraparound. And this movie was removed because it didn't have a good wraparound. In fact, it didn't have a wraparound at all. That's what holds your anthology together. You've got to have 
if you're not doing a creep show type thing, you've got to have a beginning, middle, and end that really connects and brings the audience in with terror. And you have to remember with an anthology is the movie ends with the wraparound. So if your wraparound has a shitty ending, everything you've watched is going to be judged as eh because you ended the movie with kind of a, a, a limp dick, a fart, and nobody wants that. You've got to push through, and the problem with most of the movies we just discussed is they kind of end with a fart. So the wraparound is the most interesting part in this selection, and the ending is just like they go fucking home. And she, like, and they put, like, a, you know, a chroma key on the, uh, the chroma key, that's not the right word. Uh, but anyway, there's, you know, the Chiron on the, um, on the backdrop is just saying she wrote a successful film and now she's drinking champagne. It's like, what? All right. You didn't even really end it. You just kind of went, oh, she's a successful horror writer now. Sh- sure. What happened to the, the cool looking devil creature that you, okay, we're, we're barely going to mention him. Gotcha. Understood. I guess the writer's strike is over. I don't know. So yeah, that's Terrorize, and I think that's three anthologies. I don't know if we mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but hey, this is a two-parter. I think it's more funny to let everyone know that this is the end at the end, you know? It's like a sad trombone. That's the twist! Exactly! This is the twist, Hank! It's a twist! It's gonna continue on longer! So I guess that's it. This is the first part of our anthology special because everything's a special now. Every episode, it's special because you're spending time with us. Until next week. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.